Good afternoon. I'm Noah Cruz, Associate Director of the Service Learning Center here at Calvin College, and it is my privilege to welcome you today to the January Series 2012 of Calvin College. Please join me now for a word of prayer. Triune God, we thank you on this day for the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., for the way his faith in you inspired him to speak out against injustice, for the change his work contributed during the civil rights era, and for the ways he continues to inspire a new generation to seek your kingdom. We ask now that you would bless our presenter as he shares with us insights into a faith-inspired activism that can mobilize our hope in the years to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now Michelle Lloyd-Page, Dean of Multicultural Affairs at Calvin, will introduce our guest. Good afternoon. Adam Russell Taylor is Vice President of Advocacy at World Vision USA. He recently completed a year-long fellowship at the White House and formally serves as the Senior Political Director for Sojourners. It is fitting that Adam Russell Taylor is speaking to us today, a day designated to honor the life and the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. For in his book, Mobilizing Hope, Faith-Inspired Activism for a Post-Civil Rights Generation, Adam Taylor draws upon the legacy of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. to make a case for young people of faith to become transformed nonconformists and to become involved in the fight for justice. But his challenge is not just for the young alone. It is for anyone who is grieved by the brokenness of our world and seeks to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Adam Taylor, like his book, is inspiring, challenging, passionate, and visionary. Calvin College is pleased that Adam Russell Taylor is with us today and it is grateful to Spectrum Health for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Adam Taylor. Well, thank you, Michelle, for that kind introduction. I want to thank Calvin College for the chance to be with you. I'm really honored and humbled to be here on Dr. Martha King's birthday what would have been his 83rd birthday if he was still alive and with us, but certainly his spirit is with us. I I like to think of this January series as kind of the golden globe of Christian college speaking. So I'm really humbled to be a part of this event. It's got a rich legacy. I was really inspired by all the other speakers I saw that I got to share company with this year. So I really want to thank you for this invitation. I have heard rumors that the Midwest and Michigan can kind of be on slightly on the staid side in terms of your participation in worship or in events. So I want to see if we can prove that wrong. And I come from a black preaching Baptist tradition. I know I'm not giving a formal sermon today, although certainly I might switch into a preaching gear from time to time. But I want to invite you, if you hear something that resonates with you, to say amen. And if that feels a little too foreign or is going to stretch you too much, just give me what I like to call a holy head nod. 
And that way, kind of know that you're listening and that you're with me. I want to say for those of you who have had a chance to read Mobilizing Hope, that some of this, of what I'm about to say, is going to be familiar. But I really want to build on some of those themes and use my talk as a springboard to get to your questions. Because so much of what I share really has to be wrestled with in dialogue and in conversation. So we certainly will leave a lot of time for Q&A at the end. I want to tag a title onto this talk that certainly builds on the title of my book. But the title that I want to reflect on is Radical Discipleship and Transformed Nonconformism. Radical Discipleship and Transformed Nonconformism. And I pray and hope that by the time we leave here together, you'll be clear about what I mean about those and the call that I think is embedded within them. When we look back at history, it is often easy to believe that certain changes in our nation's history, the world's history for that matter, were somehow inevitable, as though the wheels of history were automatically turning. When I look back on the 1940s and 1950s, and I know many of you in the audience grew up or lived through that period, there's a temptation to think that somehow the sacrifices and the commitments and struggles of a small committed minority was somehow inevitable. I'm talking about the minority that fueled the civil rights movement. And yet, when you, know, you certainly talk to people that lived, up, lived and, and grew up during that era, there wasn't necessarily anything that was inevitable about the civil rights movement taking place. It took the active will and decision of people to get in the way of injustice. Just ask some of the people that are associated with this image right here that I wanted to open with. Some of you may recognize this as a picture from the initial freedom ride that the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, organized almost 50 years ago, 51 years ago to, the, to, to this year. The freedom rides were an effort to challenge segregation and interstate commerce. And a group of white and black, young and old people boarded a Greyhound bus from Washington, D.C., which is now my home, and traveled into the heart of the South to make a statement to challenge segregation and interstate commerce. What many people know is that the first bus was firebombed, and the second bus was overturned by an angry mob. But the piece of history that sometimes gets untold is that it was a group of students at Fisk University that had the courage and the determination to keep the Freedom Ride going. They decided that they would hire a bus, and much to their own peril, boarded it and continued the ride where it left off in Birmingham, and literally carried it all the way through until it reached a destination in New Orleans. And in the process, forced the hand of the federal government to send in federal troopers to protect them as they were continuing that ride. I'm sharing this little tidbit of civil rights history because I believe that young people in particular, and students, and I know many of you are students here at Calvin, play a historic role in being the moral interrogators, being the vanguards of social change. And one of the organizations that has inspired my activism the most today is SNCC, or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was essentially the student arm of the civil rights movement. And we're going to dwell on a little bit of that history today. I want you to think about whether there are certain injustices 
that are so egregious, that are just so awful, so pernicious, that your children are going to look back and wonder how we ever allowed that condition or that situation to persist for so long. And I would argue that each, within each and every one of us, there is an intrinsic desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to stand on the right side of history, and that it takes the relentless will and persistence of people that refuse to accept the status quo and in many cases decide to become a part of God's plan and become instruments of God's righteousness and justice that ultimately radical changes take place in our politics. And that's what I think Dr. King stood for and what he represents in such a powerful way. Today is Dr. King's birthday, as I mentioned before. And at its best, this holiday is a day for introspection, to look inward, not just at ourselves, but at our nation, to take stock of how far we've come and to celebrate that progress, but also to look at how far we have to go in realizing Dr. King's dream of the beloved community. It is a day in which we rededicate and recommit ourselves to the unfinished business of the civil rights movement and of Dr. King's great legacy. Many of you probably know that a memorial was recently dedicated to Dr. King on the National Mall. He is the first American, not a, as a non-president, to get a national memorial created in his name. I had a chance to attend the dedication of that ceremony a couple of months ago, and it had been delayed because Hurricane Irene derailed plans for the initial date, which is going to be on the anniversary of the March on Washington. And I stood there with my one-year-old son, Joshua, which was very poignant and powerful and, and maybe very fitting given the role that Joshua played in the Old Testament. But I'm sitting there, sitting there standing there with my son in my arms, listening to the speeches and, and listening to the reflections in Dr. King's life. And two things really stood out. They actually came from the mouths of Dr. King's children. Martin Luther King III said that there is a temptation to overly idolize Dr. King, to get so caught up in the icon of who Dr. King was that we lose sight of his true ideals. And there's an also a, a temptation to get lost in the brand of Dr. King. I mean, there is a brand, if you will, surrounding his name, and to lose sight of his core beliefs, particularly the full scale of his beliefs. Then his daughter got up and said, maybe it was providential that Hurricane Irene disrupted the initial day when this memorial was supposed to be dedicated, because all the attention would have been focused on, I have a dream, which is an incredible speech. But sometimes we focus so much on the king of Montgomery and of Selma, the, the Dr. King that fought for voting rights and civil rights, that we, for, we can forget about the Dr. King who was killed while organizing and supporting sanitation workers who were fighting for a living wage in Memphis, Tennessee before he was tragically shot down. Or the Dr. King that spoke out against the Vietnam War because he believed it was an unjust and immoral war. Or the Dr. King that understood that the next phase of the civil rights struggle was to reach a place in a state where every American could experience full economic opportunity and justice. Well, I believe that we inherit that unfinished business. And on Dr. King's holiday, it's a chance, 
an opportunity, an invitation to rededicate ourselves to that mission. This is just an image of SNCC that I mentioned earlier. These are the sit-ins that took place during the Civil Rights Movement. And one of the things that I've struggled with as a young Christian and as a young leader is that it's very easy to memorialize and even romanticize previous social movements. And I've done this quite a bit with the Civil Rights Movement, where it's almost as though you kind of get stuck in the past without really understanding the way in which we carry on that torch, we carry on that legacy. As leaders today, we have to reinvent activism to address the modern-day crises that face our country. Dr. King believed in this notion of the beloved community. It was tied into his understanding of God's righteousness, God's radical love, and God's justice. And as we look at the landscape of America today, I believe that there are many ways in which Dr. King's heart would be broken, would be anguished. If you look at the number of Americans living in poverty today, one in five Americans live in the quicksands of poverty. Dr. King's dream of economic justice and opportunity is a dream deferred. If you look at our criminal justice system and you see that one in three African Americans, African American men, are currently under the control of our criminal justice system, they're either in prison they're behind bars or they're, in, they're on parole. Dr. King's dream of racial justice and racial opportunity represents a dream deferred. If we look more globally and we look at the billion people around the world that live in extreme abject poverty, living on less than $1 a day, Dr. King's dream is being deferred. If we imagine and remember that there are 27 million people that are currently being trafficked, are currently in some kind of modern-day form of slavery, which is more people than were enslaved during the transatlantic slave trade, then Dr. King's dream represents a dream that is deferred. And of course, we can name many other examples in our midst where Dr. King's dream is being deferred. But my call to you today is to join in those efforts, join in those struggles that can continue this legacy and bring it a major step forward. On the memorial that surrounds the granite statue of Dr. King, there's a a major statue that overlooks the reflecting pool. And there's Dr. King standing in kind of a regal stature. But surrounding it, there's a granite wall that has 16 quotes by Dr. King that are aligned according to themes of peace, nonviolence, justice, and hope. Unfortunately, my favorite quote didn't quite make the list. I'm going to have to argue that with the group of scholars that chose them. But in a sermon, Dr. King said something that has always been the driving force behind my activism. He said, the saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of a conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. Now, it's a mouthful, but the saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of a conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. And what I love about this quote, he's actually preaching, he's kind of doing a remix of Romans, where the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Well, King is literally preaching from that text, and he's, he's basically remaking it to say, as Christians, we are called to be creatively maladjusted to the patterns and the attitudes in our society. Not only that, but we're called to be transformed nonconformists, to be transformed by a renewing, redeeming relationship with Christ, and to not conform with the injustice and the inequality that we see around us. And when you put these together, that is literally the call of this talk, to become a transformed nonconformist. And I'm going to share more about what that means and practically how I believe you could become one in the future. But in order to do so, we have to overcome some false choices, some false dichotomies that I think have been set up within our faith. One of which, and one that's been very seductive for Christians, has been this false choice between service and activism, or put another way, between charity and justice. And the sad irony in this is that these are literally interconnected, they're interdependent, that the call to discipleship is a call to both service and activism. It's a call to both charity and justice, but they are very different, and sometimes they become confused and conflated as being one and the same. So let me just spell this out a little bit. I grew up as a part of Generation X. Unfortunately, I've never really liked that name or that term, but for whatever reason, the media and others have kind of labeled us Generation X. Our generation, my generation, got characterized as being overly apathetic, overly self-possessed, and there's certainly some grains of truth in that characterization. But one of the things that I've saw happening in my generation is that we were embracing community service in record levels and numbers. And in some cases, we were replacing a commitment to activism that we saw in the 1950s and 60s with community service because it was much easier to meet people's needs directly. And there was plenty of reasons to feel cynical about our current political system or to believe that our voice really wasn't going to make a difference or would matter. And there is a critical role for service. I know many of you participate in service, and I applaud you. I'm a part of a fraternity whose motto is, first of all, service to all, we shall transcend all. So I'm a huge believer in the importance and power of community service. But that is very different than justice as it's understood biblically. As it's understood biblically, justice requires us to go underneath and identify the root causes of people's needs, the root causes of their situation or of their suffering. Using the civil rights example, no amount of charity or goodwill was going to tear down the walls of Jim Crow segregation. Dr. King and other civil rights leaders understood that it was going to take a change in the law of the land. It was going to require passing the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then force the hand of the federal government to enforce the existing laws in order to change the country, in order to transform the country. And in a similar light, there's lots of issues that we face now, modern-day forms of injustice, that cannot be resolved by charity alone. It's going to require a change in law or attitude or practice or policy. And that's what justice is all about. It's about addressing the unjust structures or systems that often perpetuate injustice or perpetuate need. And charity is, is meeting that immediate need. And again, both are absolutely necessary. There's a text in Isaiah that does the most poetic and powerful job of twinning these things together. In Isaiah, the prophet asks what kind of fasting or religious worship God requires of us. And the prophet says 
that until we feed the hungry and until we loose chains of injustice, then our light will shine like a noonday. That, and I'm paraphrasing this text, but it goes on to say, and then we become repairers of the breach, restorers of streets with dwellings. What the prophet is getting at is that if we're not committed to acts of mercy or of charity, i.e. feeding the hungry, and to breaking the yoke of injustice or addressing systems of injustice, then our faith is hollow and that our very wholeness and fulfillment is tied into this work of justice and of charity. It is an amazing passage that really connects our wholeness, our fulfillment, our abundance with the wholeness of others. And so there's, you know, this false dichotomy that I think the church needs to break out of. There is, I mean, I could give an entire talk just on the biblical basis for social justice. And I'm going to mention a couple things, but I'm more than happy to delve into this more in the Q&A time. But there is this very rich and pervasive call throughout the Old Testament and New Testament around God's call and requirements of justice. In the Old Testament, there are countless references to misfat and to ascetic. Misfat is the word for justice, or in other words, to govern, to rule justly. To ascetic is loosely translated into righteousness, or how things ought to be. And so often these two words show up together, like in Amos, let justice rule like a mighty stream. There is this rich tradition that we stand a part of, of the prophets who often spoke to the abuse of power of kings or of religious leaders that is critical for our own witness today. The thing that I want to mention as I transition is, is the parable of persistent widow. Many of you remember in this parable, there's a widow that goes to a judge and she's had some grievance done against her. And at first, the judge completely ignores her, is like, gives her the hand. And then she comes back again and makes her case a second time. And then she comes back a third time and literally wears down the will of this judge. And we know that the judge neither knows nor fears God. So she can't appeal to the judge's faith in this case. But it's her sheer persistence that ultimately gets the judge to grant her justice. And that is what advocacy is all about. It requires relentless will. It requires persistence to wear down the will, oftentimes, of the person who's in power that ultimately can grant justice. And what I love about this parable is if you know a lot about the conditions that Jesus was living in, a widow in that time was one of the most disenfranchised, most marginalized people. Widows could not own property. They were often kind of at the outskirts of society at that time. And so here, Jesus chose a widow in his parable, I believe, to demonstrate that God can use anyone, that we don't have to have a political action committee, we don't have to have a lot of wealth necessarily in order to influence and make a difference in the lives of others and, and make a difference in our politics. And so part of what gets in the way of transformed nonconformism is a series of ways in which we have either overly compartmentalized Jesus and his call, or we've given Jesus all different kinds of aliases. I like to say that Jesus has become the victim of identity fraud. And there are a series of ways in which we do this, and I just want to mention a few of them. One of which is what I call the privatized Jesus. This is the alias where faith is only about my own personal salvation. It is only about my relationship with Christ. 
And don't get me wrong, that is a starting point. I believe that everyone should have, and I want everyone to have a personal relationship with Christ, but it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. That relationship calls us into the world to be instruments of God's kingdom come. Faith cannot be limited to fire insurance from hell. It is about God's kingdom come breaking into the here and now. Then there's the bling-bling Jesus. This is one that has become very subtle and pervasive in the church. Another word for this is the health and wealth gospel, or the name-it-claim-it gospel. In this form of Jesus, this alias, we make God into this heavenly ATM machine, where if we're just faithful with our tithes, or we're just faithful with our time, and we make a request to God that God will grant our every material desire. I'm obviously giving an extreme version of it. But the problem with this type of theology is that we make our relationship with God into a transaction. It's about what I can get from God rather than what I can experience through God because I'm in a relationship with God. The crown should never precede the cross. We always have to bear our cross before we experience the everlasting crown. And so this bling-bling Jesus is another real tempting one. Apolitical Jesus is one that's very popular in my faith tradition. I'm a Baptist. We believe seriously in the, in the separation of church and state. But that separation doesn't mean that we have to segregate our faith from public life. A lot of Christians believe that if we get too involved in politics, we'll become corrupted or our faith will come corrupted. And there's certainly risks and dangers in doing so. But if Jesus is Lord over every aspect of our life, that includes our economic life, that includes our political life, And I don't believe that as Christians we can stand on the sidelines, particularly in a democracy, and allow people to be elected and to make decisions in our name that ultimately hurt those who God cares the most about and God God is most concerned about. And apocalyptic Jesus is an alias where we're only focused on the end times. We're focused on what's next and not the here and now. And there's lots of theology tied up in that. The Constantinian Jesus is one who, like Constantine, who is the emperor who decided to convert to Christianity because he literally wanted to co-opt Christians to support his own empire desires and goals. And the problem when you fuse religion and state together is that religion, in this case the church, loses its independence. It can lose its prophetic voice. And so there's a real danger when you try to take over politics or try to take over a particular party. And I think this is one of the mistakes the religious right did or or made during the 1980s and 1990s. The last one is actually the one that's been the most tempting for me as an activist, the Che Guevara Jesus. Now this is the Jesus who is only about social action and social justice. That the gospel is only about liberating the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast. And while that is a very important part of what God calls us into, we can't ignore that we are all sinners. We are all broken. That we all need a redeeming, transforming relationship with God. And ultimately, it's God's spirit within us that enables us to do incredible things. And so we can't afford to lose sight of that personal relationship. So as you can see, there's truth embedded in each of these. And I think to become a transformed nonconformist, we have to pull out the best truth from each and combine them together to recreate a holistic Jesus, the very Jesus of Scripture that we're called to follow. I don't know if anyone here likes the movie The Matrix, but it is my favorite trilogy. And the reason I'm 
mentioning this movie is that in becoming a transformed nonconformist, there are certain experiences, there are certain encounters that God gives us that I like to call matrix-like moments. Now, you could also just call these burning bush moments. But if you remember, if you've seen the film, there's a moment where Neo, who's featured in the front here, is a computer hacker. And he knows that something just quite isn't right, that he just feels this unsettled notion that something's not right. And he gets an email from Orpheus, who comes in and and basically explains to him that his entire reality is a dream. It's fictitious, that machines are literally putting him and other humans in a dream state and are sucking out their energy, and that he invites them to join in this cause of liberating humanity from this dream state. And he offers them two different pills. One is a blue pill and one's a red pill. And he says, with the blue pill, you can forget that we even met. You can go back to this kind of fictitious reality. You'll be comfortable. You'll be safe. That'll be the end of it. Or you can take the red pill and see how far the rabbit hole goes. In other words, you can be thrown in to the struggle, and we don't know where the struggle will end, but ultimately you will be a part of this effort, this mission to free humanity. Well, I've had a number of matrix-like moments in my own life where I feel like God gave me a choice, and I could either go back to life as it was and pretend that I never saw and experienced what I did, or I could literally allow it to completely shift my trajectory. The one that I want to share was in South Africa, and I had a chance to study there in 1997, just three years after Nelson Mandela was elected the first uh, black president of South Africa, and it was a fork moment in the world and the history of South Africa, but there was still a great deal of pain and struggle as a result of that history of apartheid that South Africans were trying to reconcile. And I had a chance to volunteer at an orphanage in a township called Longa, which was literally an impoverished township where people were living in what you could barely call shacks, like corrugated iron, makeshift structures. A lot of them lived under tarps. It was a type of poverty that I'd never seen, let alone knew existed at that time in my life. And this orphanage was in a state of crisis because the board of trustees had embezzled money and had blamed it on the staff. And we're literally trying to close this home with about 100 boys, all orphaned children, and had no plan for how to relocate these children. And so at first, the staff came to me and was like, we need to raise awareness. You, you know, it's great that you're here to volunteer. Why don't you try to take the kid's mind off of what's going on? And while that was an important service to offer, I realized it wasn't addressing the bigger issue. And so I started asking questions and I started to organized with the staff, and we developed a public awareness campaign all throughout the township and beyond to try to sound the alarm. And we ultimately were able, through our campaign, by getting in the media, by writing letters, by um, involving local business people, to get the member of parliament to intervene and to force the hand of the board of trustees, and ultimately we were able to keep the home open. And I'm kind of shorting, shortening the story quite a bit, but what I learned from that experience was the power of collective action, of what we could do when we joined together and used our voice to make change. And it became this matrix-like moment because I had this experience in South Africa that was in many ways troubling but so powerful. I came back and there was a temptation to just kind of go back as life, as life is normal. I was a senior in college. It was supposed to be my, my heyday, my, my prime year. And yet I couldn't shake these memories and these experiences that were in my mind. And I decided that 
I would swallow the red pill and that I would allow that experience to completely shape and and kind of shift my direction. And I I believe and I would argue that each and every one of you have had some experiences like this in your life. And if you haven't, you will. And the question will be, what do you decide to do in those moments? What will you decide to do as you move forward? Will it change your trajectory? Will you stay on the same path? And that is the question that is so critical to being a transformed nonconformist. The other one that is crucial is this notion of pragmatic solidarity and hopeful activism. I believe hope is at the very center of social and political change, that if we don't have a sense of alive and raw hope, so so often activism can go in the wrong direction. But we also need to show pragmatic solidarity with those that are in need. There is a way in which service and activism feed each other, as I, I said before. If you are involved in activism and you have no connection to the communities or the people in which you're trying to empower, it is so easy for you to go astray, to become misguided, and to be overly self-righteous in your activism. On the flip side, if you are only involved in service and you never ask the larger questions, you never you know, try to use your voice to address some of the unjust systems that are at play, then at worst you could just be putting a band-aid on an open sore. Or you could be leading to a a situation of dependency where people are constantly dependent on that service that you're providing. And so, again, service and activism need each other. This is also an example from South Africa, but many of you probably know that South Africa is the epicenter of the global AIDS crisis. Today, about one in four South Africans are living with HIV. And back in 2000, when I had a chance to travel to South Africa, AIDS literally represented a death sentence vast majority of people couldn't afford and couldn't access the life-prolonging medicines that create what we call a Lazarus effect and bring people from the brink of death back to life. Not only that, but AIDS was surrounded in an incredible shroud of stigma to the point where people that came out as HIV positive could be stoned, they could be thrown out of their community, in some cases they could be killed. And there was an organization called the Treatment Action Campaign that came into existence around that time. And they showed what pragmatic solidarity is all about. They developed these t-shirts, as you can see here, that says HIV positive in big letters. And they gave them to anyone who was willing to wear them. People that were living with HIV, people that were not living with HIV, wore this t-shirt almost as an act of transformation to say, it doesn't matter who is HIV positive or not, everyone should experience full dignity and love. And from a faith perspective, It was a beautiful expression of the notion that if one of our members suffer, as Paul tells us, then all members suffer with it. If one part of the body suffers, then all parts suffer with it. So it was a way to show solidarity for those who are suffering. It literally helped to transform attitudes and ultimately policies in South Africa to the point where today, because of that activism, because of that outpouring of support, there is a national HIV treatment program with the support of the U.S. government and others that is providing treatment to those who used to be dying of HIV. They got this idea from the Danish king during the time of the Holocaust who decided to wear the Star of David as an act of defiance against the Nazis so that people would not be able to tell the difference between a Jew and a Christian. Denmark was a Christian nation and in many ways still is. Again, a brilliant example of pragmatic solidarity of what it means to show love, radical love, to someone who is being marginalized or is being oppressed. And so these two notions are critical 
for transformed nonconformism. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, this all sounds good. Reverend Taylor, Adam, you know, I'm with you, but it seems like there's some serious attitudes that get in the way. Well, I'm glad that you asked that question. (laughs) Because there are some significant attitudes that often get in the way of our transformed nonconformism. I'm going to mention just a couple of these very quickly. One is the notion of rugged individualism, which is very much tied in the very ethos of the United States and of Americans. And there's a positive side to it about hard work and prudence. But there's a negative side where we sometimes focus so much on me, meism, that it almost turns into narcissism and hedonism, that the American dream is somehow associated with those things rather than a commitment to your neighbor, to being your brother's keeper. And I kind of contrast kind of two people here. You see Archbishop Desmond Tutu and you see Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck at one point basically said social justice is an anathema to the church. And if you are in a church that is talking about social justice, you should leave as fast as you can. And what was interesting about that little controversy is that he really defined the role of individuals in government in a very libertarian way, which I don't think is very consistent with the gospel call to be our brother's keeper, to live out the golden rule. You compare that to Desmond Tutu, who in South Africa helped to popularize this notion of Ubuntu, which basically means I am because we are together. It is an understanding of our interconnection, our interdependence as people. And it's very much tied into the living expression of the golden rule. So from my vantage point, the golden rule is the critical antidote that we need to excessive rugged individualism. And it's something that I think we still have to wrestle with as Americans. Another pattern that I find troubling is one of market fundamentalism. Market is a powerful thing, and I'm someone who believes in the importance and role of capitalism. But there are ways in which the market, with the, particularly a market with a pure profit motive, can get in the way of the common good. And we can get into this more in Q&A, but I really would argue that part of what drove the collapse of our economy and the collapse of Wall Street was unbridled greed and a great deal of profiteering and a great deal of risk-taking that showed a negative side or showed kind of an example of market fundamentalism. The anecdote to that is this understanding of jubilee, that God calls us to right relationships with each other. And in the Old Testament, this was understood through the concept of Jubilee, that every seven years, the land would be left fallow, debts would be forgiven, that slaves would be set free as a way to restore right relationship between people. And, you know, while the Jubilee was never practiced to the letter of that vision, it was something that informed the way the Jews understood how they're supposed to live together. And I think there are aspects of the Jubilee that we should embrace and, and, and think about in the context of our own economy. Next, particularly on this King Day, is this myth or this pattern of being a post-racial America, which I think is a myth. When we look out at the landscape of America, we can see that we have made a lot of progress and we should celebrate that progress. But sadly, punishment and privilege is still too often viciously tied to race and skin color in America. And until we look at that bar, until we start setting our sights on what will it take to ensure that neither privilege nor punishment is tied to race in America, 
I don't believe that we will have arrived at that beloved community that King dreamed of. We are approaching very rapidly a moment in our nation's history by 2042 where Americans of color will be in the majority. And I think some of us see that as a threat. Others of us see that as a real opportunity. And I pray that all of us on this King Day can embrace this as a, as a real opportunity to advance this cause of racial reconciliation and justice and see our diversity and our pluralism as a strength and not as a weakness. Next is this pattern of narrow nationalism. This is where we can be very parochial in our interests and look only internally. But the reality is we live in an increasingly globalized, interdependent world. And as Christians, we should have concern not just for our own neighborhood, but for the entire world. And so I think it's critical that we understand how do we leverage America's resources, its wealth in the world. And I believe that we should be doing more to fight poverty, more to fight human trafficking, more to fight the number of abortions that are taking place in the world. That that is an important expression of American leadership. And so I think American or global citizenship and leadership is a critical anecdote to narrow nationalism. So all of these are kind of patterns that make it difficult to be a transformed nonconformist. But ultimately, you may be asking another question, which is, how do you do it? What are the tools? And again, I'm really glad you asked. Because the thing I want to end on is what I call the new wineskins. Now, these are the very methods, the very tools that I believe God has given us to be transformed nonconformists. My favorite story in the Bible is the one of David and Goliath. It's one that you know, most Christians and non-Christians alike know really well. But I had a, a Jewish professor, actually, who taught me to see this story in a very different light. He th- helped me to see it through the lens of organizing and of political change. If you remember the story, David is the shepherd boy, probably skinnier than I am, who has the gumption to take on the mighty Philistine Goliath. And initially, Saul the king gives David a mighty sword and a set of armor. And if you can just picture the shepherd boy like completely weighted down by this armor and sword, and, and David has the, the smarts to realize that these conventional weapons are useless to him. He uses his sanctified imagination to reconfigure the battlefield according to the unique gifts that God has given him. He remembers how God enabled him to overcome a lion and a bear with a slingshot and a stone. And the rest, you know. He finds a stone, actually five smooth stones in the brook. He uses one of them to slay the mighty Philistine and cuts off the mighty Goliath's head with his sword. What I, what I want to emphasize in this story is that to be a transformed nonconformist, you have to reconfigure the battlefield, if you will, according to the unique gifts that God has given you, has given us. And I believe that there are many Goliaths in our midst. In our midst. Goliaths have a way of paralyzing us. They feel invincible. They feel overwhelming. And that is the case for a lot of the issues that I think are modern-day forms of Goliath, of Goliath, whether it's extreme global poverty, the cradle-to-prison pipeline I talked about earlier, abortion, human trafficking, climate change, genocide, HIV and AIDS. We can make a much longer list. And oftentimes, when you just throw out statistics about these things, it feels overwhelming. They feel like a Goliath. But ultimately, you have to find the smooth stones that God has given you and as God has given me in order to make a difference. 
There are kind of five smooth stones that I think we have within our possession that are critical for any effective campaign that's going to make a difference in the lives of others. As I said before, you've got to reconfigure the battlefield. Then you've got to figure out a way to what's called cut the diamond. It's another way of saying you've got to cut an issue in just the right way so that you can make it feel less overwhelming to others and you can empower them to take action in a way that's going to create a tangible difference in their lives. An example of this is in the late 1990s, World Vision was seeing the epidemic, the crisis of AIDS, unfold all across our programs around the world. And we knew that HIV and AIDS was a controversial issue. It was often associated with a gay lifestyle or deviant sex. And so we knew it wouldn't be a popular one. But they decided, the organization at that time decided that it was our call, it was our obligation to awaken the church around this crisis. So what we decided to do at the time was to cut the diamond, cut the issue of HIV and AIDS, and focus on the issue of orphans and vulnerable children. Because that was an entry point that most Christians could really understand and embrace. And of course, we just didn't end there. We then added the whole picture that AIDS was devastating communities and others. But it was through the eyes and the stories of orphans and vulnerable children that people started to care and to listen. And so cutting an issue is is really critical. Power mapping is another kind of tool used in activism to better understand who ultimately has the power and what are their interests and how do you have connections to those people. Public narrative is the way you share your story to others so that you can inspire them and get them to join your campaign. And then, of course, hope is the very core of what we do. A theologian named Moltmann once said that as Christians, we have an eschatological hope that can enable us to overcome any existential hell that people face. And I I love this quote because as Christians, we really do have this hope based in the cross, based on the way in which Jesus turned a symbol of oppression and brutality, namely the cross, into a symbol of salvation and of hope. That was the subversive judo that Jesus did on the cross that enables us to have a hope that we can overcome anything no matter what the odds are. And that hope is something that we have to hold on to. I want to give you a really quick concrete example. I know I'm running out of time. Just to kind of make this real for you. So I was a part of an organization I started called Global Justice. And this was in the early stages of the HIV and AIDS pandemic. And Coca-Cola had made an announcement at the International AIDS Conference in Barcelona that they would treat their entire workforce in Africa who are living with HIV. It was just a huge announcement with lots of fanfare. Now, full disclosure, Coke paid my way through college, so I am an indebted person to Coca-Cola. But let's be honest, they essentially sell sugar water. I don't know if you're a Pepsi fan, Coke, whatever your preference is. But they are very, very brand conscious. And we started reading the fine print of that agreement and realized that they were only committing to treating their managers, not their entire workforce, not the 100,000 people, but the 2% of that workforce that were in a managerial position. And we thought that was a real double standard. And so we mounted a ragtag campaign, felt very much like a David and Goliath situation, where we, we had about 30 campuses around the country that were active in the organization at the time, And we started writing letters to the CEO of Coca-Cola. We generated some media publicity around their commitment. We had a couple of demonstrations, all trying to influence the CEO of Coca-Cola to change course and do the right thing. We identified the Achilles heel of Coca-Cola, which was their brand and their image. And ultimately, once that started to become questioned, they 
changed their tune and made an announcement that they would c- commit to treating their entire workforce. So thousands and thousands of people had access to life-prolonging treatment because of the actions of some students and others who wrote letters and generated some media and mounted a shoestring campaign that ultimately changed their behavior. So I know what a well-designed campaign can do and what kind of difference it can make. Some of the new wineskins that we need to continue to develop are letters and phone calls that become kind of the, the very lifeblood of our democracy today. Social media and email and internet are critical tools for reaching others and enlisting them in the cause. Consumer activism is critical. Using the media is critical. I can dwell on some, some of these in Q&A. I just wanted to lift up, some of you may have seen that the time person of the year is the protester at writ large. And I found it kind of interesting that time kind of focused on the Arab Spring and the role that protesters have played in this last year in creating change. And while protest can sometimes take on a negative connotation, I think the way to redefine that from a Christian point of view is to become a transformed nonconformist. And to do that, these are the very tools that you'll use in order to make change. I just want to end with my favorite proverb, which isn't from the book of Proverbs. But it's one that says, it's an Ethiopian proverb, that says, when spiderwebs unite, they can entangle a lion. And what I love about this is if you think about every individual strand of a spiderweb is very weak and can break. But when they form a web, it becomes much stronger than itself and it can entangle something like a lion. Well, there are lions in our midst as we reflect on this King Day, whether it's poverty, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's abortion, whether you name the lion, there are plenty of lions that are devouring dreams, are stealing away the potential of children and others, that are literally suffocating the hope of communities and of people. But I believe that the spider web is in this auditorium, that each and every one of you is a strand that can form a web, putting your faith into action, so that you can be a part of this mission of God to help realize God's kingdom come in the here and now. That is the call of the transformed nonconformist. And my prayer is on this King Day, you can rededicate yourself and recommit yourself to that vocation, to that commitment. Not everyone needs to be the brilliant orator. Not everyone needs to make this your full-time job. Not everyone needs to even work on the same issue. But I believe it is part and parcel to to discipleship that you find your voice and you use it in a way that can advance hope, justice, and righteousness for others. So I pray that you'll join this web and that together we can entangle the lines of injustice in our midst. Amen? Amen. Amen. We want to thank Reverend Taylor for encouraging us to think about not only the the Goliaths that are in our society, but the ways that we can unite together to overcome the Goliaths that are there. There are a few minutes for Q&A. There are some microphones in the aisle, um, in the lower level and in the upper level. And if you would please go to the microphones, we'll let them take some questions. Uh, barely, <laughs> but go ahead.
She said, talk and it'll get louder. Yeah. <laughs> No, thanks for the question. I mean, clearly, abortion is probably the most volatile and divisive, one of the most volatile and divisive issues in our politics today. I think a lot more needs to be done, and it's got to be a combination of what the government can do and should do, what churches and nonprofits should do, and certainly what we as communities should do. There are a lot, there are a lot of women, particularly African-American women, as you mentioned, who are making a desperate choice to have an abortion. And I think some of them could be encouraged to make a different choice if they had the right support systems in place, if they even were able to see an ultrasound, if they were able to have the economic and family supports that are going to help raise that child. So I think that's kind of one important piece of this. I also think that there's a lot that the government should do to find those solutions that will deter and, and discourage people from making that desperate choice. I know that there's, you know, Lots of people who believe that the, the solution is to criminalize abortion across the board. I think that abortion should be dramatically restricted. I think that there are some cases where an abortion, this is just me personally speaking, um, should, be, should be allowed. But the bottom line is that this has become such a political football in our culture and our politics that we have been unable as a church to find those solutions that we can agree to. And so I think we should start there, and then we could continue to talk through all the things we disagreed around, whether, you know, it's should the right to an abortion be overturned or not. But there's so much work that needs to be done from those three different levels I talked about. Uh, before I ask my question, I just want to thank you for coming here and your work and challenging this community. It's really appreciated, so... Um, one thing that's consistently overlooked on Martin Luther King Jr. Day is Martin uh, Luther King Jr.'s commitment to pacifism. And I was wondering why you think that is and what we can do to make nonviolence a more distinguished theme on this celebratory day. Thank you for that question. Part of it is I think pacifism is not a very popular belief system or vocation, and it's a very difficult one or oftentimes misunderstood one. Um, there's, there's kind of two sides of that, though. One is a commitment to nonviolence in the way in which you engage in activism. And I think this is one that we should all agree with, that, as King talked about, if your means don't align with your ends, it's going to corrupt the ends you're seeking to achieve. 
So if you try to use violence to create a peaceful end or a just end, it's ultimately going to corrupt that just end. And so I think for those of us that are engaged in any kind of activism or transformed nonconformism, we should be committed to nonviolence as a core principle and as a core way of doing it. In terms of the broader kind of belief system of, of pacifism, that one is, is tougher, particularly when we live in a interconnected, interdependent world where there certainly is the real threat of terrorism and a question of how do you best address that threat. Um, I personally am kind of a person that understands these questions or grapples with them through the lens of just war theory, which isn't perfect, perfect either. But I think it's hard for, hard for me to embrace a pure pacifism, even though ultimately I believe that God stands on the side of peace and of, of nonviolence. Next question? Either, yeah, sure. Um, I'd like to thank you for speaking today. And I just had a question about your last point. Um, the slide mentioned moving beyond protesting. Mm. And could you maybe speak a little more about that and how you see protesting working in movements today? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I think there is a critical role for protest, but I think sometimes we overly narrow activism if we see that as the main expression. There is such a need today for each and every one of you as citizens, hopefully voting citizens, to use your voice and remind your members of Congress, your state senators, your city council members what you're concerned about, what your priorities are. And unfortunately, too many of us stand on the sidelines of our politics, either because we're cynical about it or we don't feel like it's going to make a difference. And that just perpetuates the the current disconnect between our leadership and the concerns and priorities of you. And so to close that gap, it's critical that you write letters from time to time, you make phone calls from time to time, you try to set up a meeting and meet with your member, either as a church or through an organization. I'm amazed at how accessible our political system is when you decide to use your own agency to access it. And the the tragedy is when we decide not to for a host of reasons. So I think that's one piece of it. The other thing that I think is really important is that We have so much influence and power as consumers that we often don't utilize. You know, so much of what kind of drives policy now is corporate decisions and policy. And corporations, in most cases, are responsive to the bottom line. They're responsive to consumer interests and demands. And so, you know, if we know of a corporation that is doing the wrong thing or is exploiting people or supporting um, a country that is trafficking individuals, you know, I think we have the responsibility to become more educated about it and use the power of our consumer activism. In other words, you know, boycott or not buy certain products in order to try to create change. So that's kind of another strand that is different than protest that I think is absolutely crucial to create change today. We have about 60 seconds for the last question and answer. Just briefly, I wanted to um, ask about your opinion on Occupy, who uh, defines itself not as a movement with a platform, but as a platform for a movement. And uh, as someone who does community organizing, that that seems a little backwards. Um, I'm having a hard time really hopping on board. Yeah. You know, Occupy, I think, is a real mixed bag in terms of how I view it. Um, I certainly applaud a lot of young people and others that got fed up with inequality and corporate greed from their perspective in America and decided to do something about it. Um, I think the challenge that you kind of alluded to is that, one, 
there hasn't always been a really rigorous commitment to nonviolent social change. And, you know, the acts of a minority can mar the overall acts of a group of people, and that's happened in some of the demonstrations. The other problem is it's not really clear what they're standing for. I mean, we kind of know generally, but it's so amorphous and ambiguous that I think it's very difficult for them to convince and convert other Americans that there's not only something wrong, but here are some things that we can do to address it. So I don't think they necessarily need a detailed 10-point plan on how to end inequality in America, but I think at some point they're going to have to coalesce around some policy political prescriptions, and I think that's probably going to be their downfall because part of the ethos of, de- of Occupy is decentralized power and kind of a leaderless organization. So I'm not sure how they're going to coalesce around anything that's concrete. Adam, one more time for coming and sharing with us. And we would also like to thank Spectrum Health for underwriting today's presentation. Um, Adam and his books will be in the West Lobby, and since I'm directionally challenged, I won't point in that direction, um, so that you may greet him and purchase his book. Thank you so very much, and we look forward to seeing you here tomorrow. Thank you, and God bless. Sure, sure.